Dave Perry. In my previous podcast, I argued that there are some ethical principles that are objectively true, but also that they might conflict in practice. A potential way to resolve moral dilemmas would be to show that at least one of the relevant principles is absolute, admitting of no exceptions and overriding all other moral considerations. So are there any such absolutes? Now, some reply, yes, there are absolute moral principles, namely those commanded by God. In theory, every person might be able to hear the voice of God directly, in which case presumably everyone would hear the same general moral commands, or at least ones that were logically consistent. But religious believers often disagree among themselves, not only between religions, but within the same religious tradition, on how one comes to know those commands and what they specifically require. And, of course, individuals can be mistaken about what God might say to them directly. Most of the faithful, in fact, tend to place greater trust in their sacred scriptures than in individual revelation. But, unfortunately, those scriptures can be inconsistent guides to action, even on a question as fundamental as to whether it's ever right to kill people. For instance, if a Christian were trying to assess the ethics of killing, should he or she follow the teachings and example of Jesus, who seemed to advocate strict nonviolence, or some Old Testament writers who who urged strict retributive justice, including capital punishment, or Joshua, who supposedly slaughtered every last inhabitant of Jericho in obedience to God's order. I'll say more about such questions in later podcasts. But it's clear to me that religious believers can't escape the necessity of wrestling with ethical challenges without strict or exclusive reliance on scriptural commands or stories. Some philosophers have also attempted to unify all moral obligations under one overarching non-religious principle or procedure. For example, utilitarian ethical theorists rely exclusively on a teleological or consequentialist principle, seeking the greatest balance of beneficial over harmful consequences among alternative actions or policies. While Immanuel Kant's theory is strictly deontological or non-consequentialist, testing every potential moral rule as to whether it can be universalized without logical contradiction. Both utilitarians and Kantians also claim absolute status for their fundamental principles. Now, the strengths of utilitarian theory lie in its consideration of the well-being of all sentient beings potentially affected by proposed actions, and its goal, and in its goals of ameliorating suffering and enhancing happiness. The chief virtue of Kantian ethics is its respect for individual human autonomy, dignity, and worth. Both of those theories have been highly influential for good reasons, but many other ethicists have identified serious problems with them. Utilitarianism is especially vulnerable to concerns about justice and basic rights, while Kantian ethics tends to undervalue the importance of compassion. A more promising approach to me was developed by W. David Ross, an important 20th century British philosopher. He proposed a mixed or pluralistic theory that sees non that sees consequentialist, non-consequentialist, and auritaric or etaic, sorry, or a character-focused concerns as important to consider in making moral decisions. Ross argued in his book, The Right and the Good, that there are no absolute moral principles. Rather, there's a cluster of prima facie duties, each of which has moral weight and may take precedence over others in different situations. 
Often our prima facie duties will reinforce one another in ruling out cruel or purely egoistic actions, but when our obligations do conflict, there's no way to establish for all time which will take precedence. Ross believed that we must simply wrestle with every duty relevant to a particular situation and determine which is most weighty. In other words, which prima facie duty is our actual duty then and there. So in some cases, our paramount moral duty will be to promote happiness, in others to prevent or alleviate harm, in others to protect rights, and so on. The need for moral deliberation and wisdom is simply part of the human condition in Ross's view. Now, the fact that one principle can give way to another does not mean that the less weighty one loses significance entirely. For example, deciding that I must break a promise to meet a friend in order to save the life of an accident victim whom I encounter on the way does not mean that my promise to my friend loses all moral value. I still regret breaking the promise even when it's the right thing to do. But Ross's principles apply universally, across cultures, and apart from individual differences in preferences and tastes. Ross was not a relativist. And I think that Ross was right in believing that our general moral obligations are a mixture of consequentialist, non-consequentialist, and aritaic ones, and that there's no clear hierarchy among prima facie duties that would apply to every possible ethical dilemma. But there may nonetheless be some absolute moral rules. Consider don't rape and don't torture children or animals. There don't seem to be any credible exceptions to those rules, where they could justifiably be overridden by more important duties. Of course, we need to define rape and torture in morally neutral ways if the rules I've suggested are to avoid begging the question. However, it's very difficult often to state other rules that aren't vulnerable to counterexamples. Consider the rule don't kill, never in self-defense, never in defense of other, other innocent people, or consider the rule don't lie, even to save lives or prevent other serious harm. Such counterexamples suggest that general rules against killing and lying are not absolute. But principles can sometimes be strengthened by incorporating exceptional cases into them. For example, we might modify don't lie in this way. It's wrong to deceive people unless they have forfeited their right to know the truth or they lack the ability to make rational decisions and telling them the whole truth would clearly hurt them more than it would help them. Of course, these specific exceptions are controversial and it would take more complicated arguments to support them. So in conclusion, what does good ethical reasoning require? As I hope I've shown, ethical decision-making can't be reduced to a short checklist or model, including the guidelines I suggested in my previous podcast. Fundamentally, good ethical reasoning requires a rich range of moral emotions, including empathy toward others' suffering and well-being, a sense of fairness and outrage against injustice, a, a desire not to incur shame and guilt from doing evil, and so on. But since some of our gut-level feelings and judgments can be rooted in biased perceptions and ignorance, as in racism or sexism, we need to be able to reflect on whether they're sensible or not. This demands mindfulness and self-awareness. Good ethical decisions can also depend on imagination, both in anticipating the consequences of alternative actions or policies for everyone they'll affect, 
and in creating new and better options. In other words, we need both critical and creative thinking. Sound ethical reasoning sometimes entails hard intellectual work to research relevant facts and probabilities, to identify which prima facie duties are at stake, and to determine whether an ethical argument satisfies the canons of logic. And converting ethical reasoning to action may require courage to oppose powerful countervailing social, organizational, economic, or political pressures. In some situations, when sufficient time is available before a decision must be made, people of integrity will need to draw upon all of those traits and skills. In other instances, though, split-second decisions will not permit sophisticated analysis. We can educate and train people to make good decisions even in those cases, but at that point they'll be relying on largely unconscious intuitions and judgments, not a deliberate decision-making model. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle expressed a similar note of caution in his Nicomachean Ethics. It's the mark of an educated person, he said, never to expect more precision in the treatment of any subject than the nature of that subject permits. As his predecessor Socrates taught, what we really need is to cultivate moral wisdom, but there's no shortcut or simple prescription or comprehensive fix for that. It's a lifelong, complex quest. I'm David Perry. I hope you'll visit my website at practicalethicsinstitute.com, and thanks for listening.